0: Now today, friends, we come to the second chapter of the gospel of Mark. And as we come to this chapter, why we find it's really a continuation of chapter 1. In fact, Mark has that marvelous connective, and, and, and. It occurs, I forget how many times I told you. I never counted to myself. I took somebody else's word for it. But it certainly occurs many times, and it is a little word that is the cement that holds it together, and it always joins up with what's gone before, with what follows it. Now, I begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1 of Mark, "...and again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house." And I emphasize that word, the house. We'll see why in a moment, for there are two things in this verse I'd like to emphasize. We find that he entered into Capernaum after some days. We said, I think, last time that he moved his headquarters from his hometown of Nazareth down to Capernaum. And the best that I can tell that Capernaum remained the headquarters for our Lord's earthly ministry of three years. Now, he had to withdraw, and last time we saw the reason of his withdrawal was due to the fact that this leper which he healed was one who didn't do what he requested him to do. He told him not to tell anyone, and he went out and told everyone." And the crowds pushed in upon him, and our Lord couldn't do his work. Now, this is one of several reasons of why the Lord Jesus did not come as a thaumaturgist, a wonder worker, and he didn't want. That to be the thing that would characterize him, and he didn't want this man and others to tell about that because he came for a spiritual ministry. He came to die upon the cross for the sins of the world, and this type of thing obscures the gospel. Now, very candidly, and I want to be fair and frank, one of the reasons that I object so vociferously to today, these people who put the emphasis on healing or tongues or something like that, is even if these were gifts for this age in which we're living right now and at this particular time, then that's getting the cart before the horse. Someone said to me some time ago, well, Dr. McGee, so-and-so preaches the gospel just like you do and therefore they just do this other thing. Yes, but are they known for preaching the gospel? Is that the reason people go to the meetings? Is it to hear the gospel and be saved? Or is it to go with an emphasis upon healing or to have some emotional experience? I think that we need today to quiddle this down to a very fine point. Our business is primarily to preach the gospel. And we're going to see that occur again in this particular chapter here. So that the Lord Jesus was hindered because of this, and he left Capernaum for a while, I don't know how long, and then he came back. And when he came back, it says that he came and it was noised, he was in the house. Now, the little Greek word, the, the article, it's really an adjective in the Greek, and it is so declined. And it always is a modifier, and it would refer to a very particular definite house. Now, the question is, what house is mentioned here in these first few verses of the gospel of Mark? Well, we're told that after he had been to the synagogue that morning, back in chapter 1, we're told in verse 29 of chapter 1, that they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew. And you need to keep that in mind, that when these fellows start taking off a roof, they're taking the roof of Simon Peter's house off. And I'm not sure that that man would be docile and stand aside, let him do it. I'm not sure he'd have permitted it quite like that. Now we're told that he's in the house, he's returned to Capernaum, and the crowds were there. And notice this, straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. And I would emphasize here that he preached the word unto them. That was the ministry of our Lord, was to preach the word of God. And that is the emphasis that we feel should be made today. It's an emphasis upon the Word of God, upon the integrity and inerrancy of the Word of God. And my prayer for myself in this connection is, oh, God, give me more confidence in the Word of God. I see what it's doing today in hearts and lives. I know what it's done for me. And as a result, I ought to have even more confidence than I have And I'll be very frank with you when I make this tape. I wonder whether it's going to have any influence in any heart or life. Well, we trust that it will. But I must confess that I don't have the faith I should have. This is the word of God, and it'll never return unto him void. And I rejoice to read here that our Lord preached the word unto them. Now, we are diverted, and our attention is directed to another group. And it's a little delegation of five. They're coming down the dusty road into Capernaum. And verse 3 reads, And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born afore. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, our attention is directed to this little group of five. And they arrange like this. One man with a palsy. Poor fellow couldn't even have made it there. He's in that stretcher. And the other four, the quartets at each corner of the stretcher. And here they come. And they can't get in because the crowd is there. They fill the doors and the windows. Now, I found out in church work today that the thing that is done more than anything else is done by committees. My experience has been as pastor of many churches, that the committee is the one we depend on. Church work is done today largely by a committee in different organizations. And a committee, someone has said, is made up of those who take down minutes and waste hours. They are individuals that come together. They individually can do nothing, but together they can decide that nothing can be done. And that's generally what they do. And I think that this little group had a committee. They had a door committee. They came up, looked around, came back, said, you can't get in the door. They had a window committee, and they went up and looked around, came back, said you couldn't get in the window. And fortunately, they had a a roof committee. And the roof committee came back, and they said, we think we can get him down through the roof. So you see that if you have enough committees, you probably will get one that will function. And so they decide to let him down through the roof, and these men engaged themselves in that. Now it was a thatched roof, made of straw. All they did was lay it back, but the problem was getting that man up to the top, then letting him down in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And when they did that, why they had given all their time and attention to it, I think they were a little embarrassed. And we read then in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Well, the faith of these men. He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, that disturbed me for quite a few years. When I looked at that verse, it looked to me like it was the faith of these men that was responsible for this man being saved, for his sins being forgiven. But on closer examination, you see that it wasn't that, because I believe when I was troubled by this, and I still believe it, that you are saved by your own personal, individual faith. It's wonderful to have a godly mother, but you're not going to heaven tied to your mama's apron strings, and it's wonderful to have a godly father. But your godly father won't save anyone but the godly father. It won't save you. You will have to exert faith yourself. You have to be the one. And I believe that's true today. Now, it's not the faith of these men that saved this man, but it's the faith of these men that brought him where he could hear the Lord Jesus deal with him individually and personally because when Jesus saw their faith, it's their faith that brought him there And then he deals personally with the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, when you have that situation, it's a little different, you see. And it was the faith of these men that brought him. And what we need today, I think, in the church are stretcher-bearers, men and women, to go out and bring in the unsaved where they can hear the gospel, because there are many people today paralyzed, they have a palsy. It's a palsy sometime of sin, a palsy of indifference, a palsy of prejudice. great many people are not going to come into your church where the gospel is preached unless you get at the corner of a stretcher and bring them in there. That's what these men did. And so they brought this poor fellow in, and he never would have been in there where he could hear the Lord Jesus deal with him personally and say, "'Son, thy sins be forgiven thee.'" Now, will you notice here that when he does this, our Lord forgives this man. And I read verse 6 now. "'There were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts,' And they are the enemy. Now they didn't speak out; they just thought this, and this was what they thought. Why did this man thus speak blasphemous? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now they are wrong in the first question, right in the second. This man was not speaking blasphemous. They said, "...who can forgive sins but God only?" And they're right in that. Only God can forgive sin, you see. No judge has any right to let a criminal off. His business is to enforce the law. God's the moral ruler of this universe, and he must defend his own laws. He can't be lawless. That's just one thing even God can't be. Having made the laws, why, he obeys those laws. And his laws are inexorable. They're not changed at all. But you and I are guilty before God. We need forgiveness of sins. And he forgives, not just because he's big-hearted. He forgives us because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And therefore, the Lord Jesus was not speaking blasphemy because he was God. And he'd come to the earth to provide a salvation even for this man here. Now, these men didn't speak out, you see, but they thought this in their hearts. Verse 8, "...and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts?" Now, you see, he tries to draw them out. But these men, they've had a run-in with him before. And they always came away with a bloody nose and they decided the best thing to do here was to keep quiet, and they did. Our Lord says to them, Why are you reasoning this way in your heart? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. And by the way, they're not about to answer that at all. They're quiet. And since they are quiet why he's still going to deal with them, you see. He knew what they were thinking. In the Gospel of John, John 2.25, it says he needed not that any should testify of man. He knew what was in man. And the questions they raised, now the Lord Jesus, he puts them on a spot. And he says, which is easier, to forgive this man or to say to him, rise and walk? And though they didn't answer I'm sure they would have had to have answered and said, well, for us, it's just as easy to do one as the other. Or to put it a little differently, it's impossible for anybody but God to do either one. And that was right. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to say to this man, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. "...but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house." And the old Scotch commentator said the reason he told him to take up his bed and walk was he'd not have a relapse. He wouldn't be back on that bed. He wouldn't be coming back to the stretcher. He's going to walk from here on. When our Lord healed, he did a good job. Now we are told, and immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Now you see, this is a gospel of action, and this is one of the miracles of action. Now we still have action, although there's not a miracle here, but there's a lot of action in the gospel. Verse 13, and he went forth again by the seaside. And all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, "Follow me," and he rose and followed him. Now this is the call of Levi or Matthew, and Matthew, by the way, belonged of course to the tribe of Levi, and imagine that the priestly tribe and here he has become a publican of all things. And by the way, this ought to answer the question about the ten lost tribes. This is one of the many places where you find individuals that belong to the other tribes except Judah. When anyone tries to say that we've got ten lost tribes today, they might be lost as far as those folk are concerned, but this is no Easter egg hunt. They've been found Here's one of them right here, the tribe of Levi. And he's one of the disciples of our Lord. And our Lord calls him here. This is a remarkable incident. Now, you remember Matthew told us nothing about the fact that he gave a great dinner and invited some of his friends. And the only kind of friends he had was sinners, by the way. Now, we are told here, verse 15, "...when it came to pass..." that Jesus sat at meat in his house, that is, the publicans, and that's Levi or Matthew, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Now when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners?' Did you notice three times here we have the statement that the guests that were there were publicans and sinners? Not a good man on the list here, apparently. They were not the elite of the town. Publicans and sinners. And have you noticed that publicans come ahead of sinners? Those were the tax gatherers in that day. Now, when the Lord Jesus heard that, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, "...they that are whole have no need of the physician." But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is a tremendous answer. You don't invite the doctor over to your house for dinner and then have him send you a big bill when everybody's well. It's when you're sick that you want the doctor to come over. And the Lord Jesus said that I haven't come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. And the reason he said that Actually, there was only one kind of folk in that day, and they were sinners. There were no such thing as the righteous by any means, but the Pharisees thought they were. Now, verse 18, and the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? You see, they were under the law. But under the law, there was no instruction given for fasting. God gave seven feasts for his people, not fast days. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days." Now, that is the thing he's saying to them, is that it's more important to be related to him and to have fellowship with him than to fast. That's one thing today, friends, to be religious and put up a front. It's another thing to enjoy fellowship with the Lord Jesus and love him. Now, he illustrates this. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth, on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away the old, and the rent's made worse. Now that's one illustration. Here's another it's similar. No man putteth new wine into old bottles, that is old wine skins. Else the new wine it would burst the old wine skins. And the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Now the thing that he's saying, friends, is simply this. He said, now, I have not come to polish up the law. I have not come to add to the mosaic system. I have not come to add a refinement or development to it. He says, I have come to do something new. I didn't come to patch up the old garment. I've come to give you a new garment. Now, under the law, men worked, and their works were like an old moth-eaten garment. But our Lord came to provide a new robe of righteousness that comes down on a sinner that will trust Christ, that will enable him to stand before Almighty God. That is the glorious, wonderful thing, friends, that he's saying here. Our Lord didn't come to extend or project the law or the Old Testament system or religion. He came to introduce something new. And that which is new will be the fact that he'll die for the sins of the world. And that's going to be the new garment. But now he'd like to put a new man in that garment. And therefore, new wine goes in new wineskins. And a new garment goes on a new man. And on that robe of righteousness comes down on one who has now become a son of God through faith. This is a tremendous thing. Now, we come in the last part of this chapter to the Sabbath day in the fields. Then in chapter 3 at the beginning, you'll see the Sabbath day inside the synagogue. Now, we have seen this before. In fact, these two incidents are in Matthew, as we saw them there. And we'll see they're in Luke again. A very important incident because it was here with this question of the Sabbath day, that he broke with the religious rulers. From this time on, they sought his death. And he claims in this first one here that he's the Lord of the Sabbath day. And on the inside, he does good on the Sabbath day. question, of course, arises, did he really break the Sabbath in either incident? When they took the grain and ate on the Sabbath, did he break the law? When he healed this man with a withered hand, did he break the Sabbath law? And of course, he did not, absolutely did not. He came to really fulfill the law. But here you will find that he's actually giving an interpretation of this and reveals that he is the Lord of the Sabbath day. And doing good was the thing that was all important. Now, if you'll notice here in chapter 2, verse 23, and I'll begin reading at that particular point. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. Now, here the corn was evidently barley or could have been wheat. And actually, I don't think our Lord was breaking the Sabbath day. The way that the Pharisees would interpret the acts, was that in plucking the grain and eating it, they were harvesting grain and thrashing it on the Sabbath. Now, the law permitted them to pull the grain. We are told in Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25, "...when thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, then thou mayest eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel." When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle into thy neighbor's standing corn. Now, actually, they were following the law. Now, if they had put in a sickle, they would have been harvesting. But you see, the Pharisees had given this interpretation to it, and they would therefore interpret their acts as breaking the law. Now, we read here, "...and the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful?" The religious rulers really broke the law when they determined the death of the Lord Jesus. They had no right to do that. We'll see in this next chapter. When they determined his death, they broke the law. Now will you notice verse 25, "...he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need, and was a hungered he and they that were with him? Now, he did not insist that they had not broken the Sabbath. He refused, actually, to argue the issue here with them. And now he goes into the life of David, their king, and he cited an incident in the life of David where he had definitely broken the Mosaic law and was justified. You see, the letter of the law was not to be imposed when it wrought hardship upon one of God's servants who was attempting to serve him. And that, of course, is the story concerning David, and our Lord uses that. Let me read verse 26. "...how he," that is David, "...went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar," the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, this is a great principle in respect to the Sabbath day, And it's meaning that the law was really made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And also, here is another great principle, and that is that the Lord Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, those are two things that are very important. And by the way, I have a little book entitled, The Sabbath Day or the Lord's Day, which I feel that... This is a pretty important question. The Sabbath day or the Lord's day, which? We're, of course, not under the old Mosaic system as far as the Sabbath day because it was a part of the covenant between the nation Israel and God. He said that himself. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, "...and he entered again into the synagogue..." And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Now the question, of course, arises here, was this man, this cripple, planted there purposely? And the answer, I think, is absolutely so. Now you see, the other was out in the fields That was the Sabbath in the cornfield. That was a secular spot. Now you have the Sabbath in the synagogue, and this is a sacred spot. And the Lord Jesus had been healing the multitudes. And he'd had a ministry in that connection. They knew that if they planted this man here that was a cripple, right in the way of our Lord when he came into the synagogue that he'd do something about it. And actually, what they did is a compliment to the Lord Jesus. They said, "Why he'll heal him. And of course, they were interested in being able to say that he broke the Sabbath by healing him on the Sabbath day. Now, I believe the man, therefore, was put there. Now, the enemy was watching, we are told. Verse 2, and they watched him. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. You see, now the enemies at this particular time, at the beginning of his ministry, are watching for some little flimsy excuse whereby they might bring a charge against him. And frankly, they're not going to have long to wait because notice what he did. He saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. The Lord's going to do something here. And I think that maybe a better translation here Wycliffe translated it like this, "...Rise, come into the midst, and stand there." Uh, In other words, he asked this man to come and stand in the midst because he wanted to say something, and believe me, our Lord is going to say something there. Now, will you notice what he does? "...He saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill?" They held their peace. They had learned not to answer him because they always got in a trap when they did. Now notice, "...and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand." And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Now, the Lord Jesus broke through all of this red tape of their traditions, and he got to the heart of God's purpose in giving the Sabbath day originally to Israel. They, therefore, wouldn't answer him because they could not and knew they would incriminate themselves. And the Lord Jesus here, notice he looks around with anger. And you can put it down in your memory that Jesus could get angry. Dr. Graham Scroggie, he notes that anger here is the Arius tense in the Greek, and it carries the sense of momentary anger, while the Greek word for grief is used here in the present tense and the sense of continuous grief. And what you have here is this, when he had looked round about on them with anger, and that was just a flash, you see. He didn't carry a grudge. He didn't have malice uh, forethought and we're told being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. And that's something that he carried with him, was that awful grief because of the hardness of their hearts. Now he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Now it was the Sabbath, and because the Sabbath is made for man, and he was the Lord of the Sabbath... Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day. And the incident back there in Mark, the second chapter we looked at last time, of the Sabbath in the cornfields, it's directly connected in this incident in the synagogue. I think the two should be considered together. Now, these two incidents is what brought the break with the religious rulers. Notice verse 6. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against them how they might destroy him. Now, this is his break with the religious rulers. And because of these two incidents that pertain to the Sabbath day, these bloodhounds of hate, they got on his trail and they never let up until they folded their arms beneath his cross. This is the beginning of the plan and plot to put him to death. Now, notice verse 7. "...but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea." Now, you'll notice they're coming from these two areas now, and they're following him. "...and our Lord withdrew tactfully at this time, for, as he had said, his hour had not yet come. But later, when it did... Why, he moved into the face of all opposition in Jerusalem. Now, will you notice what happens here? And from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him. Now, notice here, the crowds followed him, and they were from everywhere." And if you just make a note of these places and look them up, you'll find out that they're coming from that entire area now to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that he was in danger, not at this time from the religious rulers. They're afraid of the crowd. But he was in danger of being overwhelmed by the mob. You know today that uh, celebrity has to be protected from the mob. And so let me read here verse 9. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Again, the crowds were not only hindering him, but actually endangering him. They were pressing in from every side. Verse 10, for he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagued. And then we're told this remarkable thing. Many, and you can't reduce many to round figures, that's true. But many means many. The desperation of the people is significant. You know, the human family, friends, is a needy family. We all belong to this family. Now we're told something here in verse 11, "...and unclean spirits..." when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Now, you see, the unclean spirits acknowledged him. And we're going to have to hold that subject for a little later. I want to put an emphasis upon this matter of demon possession at the right time and the very fact that we're seeing today the manifestation of that in what is known today as Satan worship. And there's a great deal of that. Now we find here, and I want to keep on reading, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. He did not want the testimony of the underworld. It seems strange, but he didn't. Now we find here in verse 13, we begin to see the sovereign purpose of God in choosing and ordaining the twelve apostles. Will you notice this? "...And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would." That's something I'd have you know. He's doing the choosing here. Whether we like it or not, he does the choosing. You remember, he said, "...Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit." and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. It's not irreverent to say that since he chose them and they did not choose him, he's responsible for them. That's a real comfort to know that. God has saved you, begun a good work in you. He's going to stick right with you, friends, and he's going to see you through. And that's all that this means here. Now we are told... "...he calleth him whom he would, and they came unto him. And when he calls, they'll respond. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach." Now you have here his final call to his apostles. Here's where they actually became apostles. And here's where they're sent out on a ministry apart from him. That is, he'll not go with them physically. And I don't think Mark here furnishes the details, but when you read Matthew 10, you'll find their message and method at this particular time. Now you have in verses 16 here through 19 the list of the names of the apostles. And the 12 that you have, and I'd like to just run through the list, Simon Peter, he's the first in all the lists. And then James, the son of Zambedea, is second here. John, the brother of James. And then Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. He's customarily listed with his brother. And then there's Philip. Bartholomew was Nathaniel. And then Matthew and Thomas and James the less. He's the son of Alphaeus. Always a question whether it's three James or two James. And I think some believe four. But I probably not but two. But then you have Thaddeus, that's called Lebius and Jude in other places, and then Simon the Canaanite, and then Judas Iscariot. Now, that's the picture you have before us. And I have in our book on Mark, marching through Mark, I have the list of the twelve apostles as given by the four Gospels, and also as it's given in the book of Acts. Quite interesting to make, a comparison, see who is in and who's not in. Now he chooses them, and then you have what is called the unpardonable sin. And let me read a few verses here. "...and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the demons casteth he out demons. And he called them unto him, and he said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan?" And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. Now, what he's saying is just simply this, that he could not be casting out demons by the power of the demons, for the very simple reason that that would be a house divided against itself. Now in verse 25 he says, And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into the strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and when he will spoil his house. In other words, you have first to bind the strong man before you can spoil his house. And the thing is true here, the Lord Jesus is not doing this by the power of Satan, because Satan would be divided and be against himself. Now he says in verse 28, "'Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies, whithersoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit.'" Now, that was the unpardonable sin then. It could not be committed today that way. To begin with, you have him, the second person of the Godhead who's present. And they accuse him of doing this by Beelzebub. He was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that what they were doing, they were rejecting two persons of the Godhead. The testimony of the Son, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, you couldn't have that today because he's not here in person. I say it's impossible to commit an unpardonable sin to death, you mean an act whereby if you committed it today, that if tomorrow you came under conviction and you came to God, He would forgive you. You see, Christ died for all sin, not some sin, and He didn't die for all sin but one, the unpardonable one. There's no such thing as being able to commit an act today that He will not forgive you for. Now he goes on here, and he says in verse 31, "...there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my brethren? And he looked round about... "...on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my brother and my sister and mother." And you see his half-brothers, James and Jude, both of them wrote epistles. They never mentioned that Jesus was their half-brother. You see, if you are in Christ and you're saved today, you're closer to him than his physical mother and physical brothers in that day. And that's the reason he could look around and say, these are closer of kin to me than even my mother and my brothers. And the important thing is to be rightly related to God in Christ and having received him as Savior. Then we have the right to become the sons of God. And that's bringing you mighty close to him, my friend. Now, when we come here to the fourth chapter, we have several parables here, and then the miracle of him stopping the storm. And we've been over this ground already in Matthew, except there's one particular parable he gave here that you'll not find in Matthew. And it's the only part, and that makes it outstanding as we shall see you have here the parable of the sower, and that's a declaration. You have the parable of the sower, exposition, then the parable of the candle and the parable of the growth of the seed, and the parable of the mustard seed, and then his power over nature demonstrated in stopping the storm. Now, we said at the beginning that the gospel of Mark is the gospel of action, And the emphasis is upon miracles. But you would think when we get to this chapter that the emphasis now is off of miracles and it's on parables. But you'll notice that the parables Mark gives are parables of action. And we find here that each one of these parables is really a very moving thing. In fact, the matter is, the title of our book on Mark is Marching Through Mark. And so we find here the emphasis is still upon action, even when we have the parables. Now I take again this parable of the sower, and let me read several verses. And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. Matthew gives us quite an emphasis at this point, and he says that he went out of the house and he entered into a ship on the sea. And his very action, as Matthew records it, and as Mark records it, is very symbolic. Now, the house generally illustrates the house of Israel. And the seas represent the nations, the Gentiles. His very action is he turns from his people in these parables and he goes to the world. And that actually is the background of these parables and they need to be looked at in the context of a global situation that I think is very important to see. Now, these took place, by the way, during the height of his ministry. He was very busy, and the pressure was upon him, and he was weary physically. In fact, he was tired, as we see in this chapter, when it says in verse 38, he was asleep in that ship at sea, and he was asleep because he was weary. Now, we find here that he taught them many things in parables and said unto them in his doctrine. He taught them many things in parables. And Jesus adopted the use of parables at this point in his ministry. And by the way, he was about halfway through his three years' ministry. And he used certain parabolic illustrations before, The woman at the well, for instance. And then he talked to her about the water of life. And then he told his disciples he'd make them fishers of men. And he said the fields were white under harvest. And he made use of salt and light and the foundations of rock and sand in the Sermon on the Mount. But those are not parables. But now he has adopted the parabolic method. And the parable here of the sower, he says, "...hearken, behold, I went out a sower to sow." And I would recommend, those of you that got our book on Matthew, that you refer to it at this particular point, because there we went into a great deal more detail than we go into in Mark. And then we read, and I'm reading now verse 4, "...it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up." Some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Now, these are the three areas where the seed fell, and they represent the unsaved that Do not accept the gospel. Do not accept the word of God. And these are the reasons. The wayside, the fowls devoured them. The devil takes away the word. The stony ground, the sun withers it. They don't have much deepness at all. And then there's the thorny ground, and the thorns choked it. Now we have the good ground here. He says, an other fell on good ground, did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth thirty, sixty, and a hundred. Now, we have here only one-fourth that fell on good ground, and that means these are the ones that are saved, they receive the word. But you have different degrees of fruit-bearing here, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And you remember the Lord said to his own there on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, when he told him, I am the genuine vine, he said, I want you to bring forth fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, three degrees of fruit-bearing, you see, and they are the ones that are his. Now he puts up, you notice here, a danger signal. He said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The idea is stop, looking, and listen. You've come to a railroad crossing. And obviously, some missed it, because in verse 10, when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. They missed it. They didn't quite understand it at all. And verse 11, he said unto them, Unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables." "...that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them." Now, these verses contain a certain degree of ambiguity. And I would refer you back to what we said on Matthew and our book on Matthew. And I'd like to give you a quotation here I think might be helpful. And let me read it. It's from my book on Mark. The reason that Jesus resorted to parables from this point to the end of his ministry is arresting. His enemies rejected his teaching, and the multitudes had become indifferent to spiritual truth. They were actively interested in his miracles, but not the spiritual application. He now resorts to the use of parables to enlist their interest, "...the antagonistic attitude of his enemies, and the lethargic indifference and incomprehension of the multitude necessitated a change to the use of parables, so that those who hungered and thirsted after righteousness would be filled, and those who wanted spiritual truth would have their eyes open. Now you recall in 1 Corinthians we have this same thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, "...but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God." Now dropping down to verse 13, he says, "...which things also we speak." "...not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." Now, this is a great principle that Paul put down, and is still applicable today the use of every means to try to get people to understand spiritual truth. We use the radio. I use a great many illustrated messages in the church I've served and in other places. I find that this calls attention to people that understand things that they wanted to understand. And they must want to understand them before these things can be made real to them. I would like to just make this statement that if a person's heart and his eyes are open and he wants to know, then the Spirit of God is going to bring in the great truth to his heart and make these things quite real and living to him. We sometimes use the expression, I know I use it in my ministry, that say it, and it's rather a careless statement that you'll be lost if you don't accept Christ as your Savior. Well, that's not true, really, friends. The truth is, you're already lost, whether you accept him or not. But the point is, and the way it should accurately be stated, is you will continue to be lost, friends. If you do not accept Christ as your Savior, you're not on trial. If you're a lost person, you are lost. And now it's your reaction and reception of the Word of God that's going to determine whether you'll be saved or not. Will you trust Christ. Will you accept him as Savior? And so many said, well, now you begin to move into a philosophical realm, and this is not reality. You're asking us to do something that is rather superstition. Well, I don't think that it is, and I can illustrate it. We were down in Florida, Miss McGee and I, and we'd bought tickets from an airline that had gone on strike, and we were going back on a Another airline, and they told us our tickets we'd bought in Los Angeles were good, and so I called this particular airline, and I told them that I had this ticket. The girl there looked it up, and she said, yes, you do, and the plane leaves tomorrow morning at this particular time, and you'd be at the airport about 30 minutes ahead of time. And you know, friends, I never met that girl to this good day. I just believed her. And so... And as McGee and I went to the airport the next morning, and you know, sure enough, our ticket was good. And sure enough, there was a plane that left, and we got on it. And we did every bit of that by faith. Don't tell me today, friends, that faith is not a reality. God has given his word. He asks you to trust Christ. And this is the way that the seed falls. What kind of a hero are you today? Are you the one among thorns? Are the wayside, or thorny ground, or does the Word fall on good ground? That's the important thing. But all of us are lost. The reception of the Word determines whether we're saved or not. But when people say, well, if you don't accept Christ, you'll be lost. My friend, you're lost before. (laughs) That is a misnomer to say that. Now, he gives the explanation here in verses 13 through 20. And let me just run over it since we've been over this ground before, and we'll come to it again, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke. The sower is the Son of Man, and the seed is the Word of God. And the birds by the wayside are Satan. Matthew told us that. And the stony ground hearers are those who let affliction and persecution turn them from God. That's the flesh. Oh, how many people today are letting the flesh keep them from God? Then there's the thorny ground hearers, are those who let the cares of the world distract them. That's the world. So many people today are letting the world shut them out from God. And then the good ground hearers are those who are converted genuinely by the word, and they bring forth only percentages of fruit. Only one-third bring forth a hundredfold. Now you have here, that's a parable of action, you see, even when Mark records parables there, the parables of action that the Lord Jesus gave. Then you have the parable of the candle here, and believe me, you're dealing with action when you're dealing with light. And he said unto them, as a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick. That's verse 21. For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. Now, what we have here is this parable of the candle, and it's of action. Light creates responsibility. Man must act who receives the truth, and we are held responsible to the degree that we've had light given us. The point is, you and I are in darkness until now. And we get the impression today that man is a sinner because of the fact of his weakness, or he's a sinner because of the fact of his ignorance. No, Paul says in Romans, very candidly, that man, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Man is a willful sinner. He's a willful sinner. That's the kind of sinners all of us are, and the light that comes in will create a responsibility. And I'm confident that there will be different degrees of punishment, but it doesn't change the status of an individual. We're lost before the light comes in, and if we don't accept it, we're lost afterward. We're lost. That's our condition. That is, if we do not accept it. Now, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. This is action. God demands Action on your part. And faith, you see, is action. It's acting upon what God has said. How important that is today. By the way, that illustration I use. You know, we could still be sitting down there in the airport in Miami, Florida, if we had said, well, we got a ticket and we've come this far, but we're not sure about the plane and we're going to sit right here. We'd still be sitting there. You have to act on the fact that here you've got a ticket. You have to believe that that plane's going to carry you where you're going. We got on it, and it did. And I must say, I get on a plane to this day with a lot of fear and trepidation. But I get on. (laughs) Faith demands action, friends, and that kind of action. That's what it means to believe. Now, you have this unusual parable that our Lord gave here that only Mark records it, and it's of action. He said, so is the kingdom of God. Now, you remember I said the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they are two terms that are used. The kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven here, but the kingdom of God's not identical with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God's the larger term. The kingdom of heaven is in the kingdom of God. For instance, the state of California is in the United States, but it's not the United States, in spite of what the Chamber of Commerce says. But it is in that. And so you can say that you're in California. I'm in California now, and I'm also. In the United States, both are true. Now, he talks about here the growing of the seed. As a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how." And today we don't know too much about the growing of seed. "...For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle, the harvest is come." Now this is a parable of power in action, the growth of seed into a plant, and fruit is a mystery to this day. You see, the old bromide is true, great oaks from little acorns grow, but after all the years of scientific progress there is not much more that can be added to this, the label of osmosis adds little to our understanding, all the reservoir of knowledge has been increased. Now, let me give a quotation here that I wrote after a trip back from the East, and it's in my notes on March. These notes were prepared on the train from Atlanta, Georgia, to Los Angeles, California, during the month of March. Spring had already come to the southern section of our country. Trees were budding flowers were blooming, the azaleas in Mississippi were gorgeous, and the farmers everywhere were plowing and planting. No one could tell just what was happening, but everyone was reacting to it and accepting it with full enjoyment and happy anticipation of the future harvest." Tremendous power was being released in nature as nitrogen took on the garment of green. If God let it go at once, it would make a hydrogen bomb sound like a Chinese firecracker. Now, this is a parable of the power of the Word to work in our hearts and lives. What a marvelous parable this is here. Then you have the parable of the mustard seed here. We've had that before. And you'll notice that Mustard is not food, it's a condiment. And the growth of a mustard seed into a tree is unnatural. It's the outward growth of Christendom in great organizations, big churches, large programs geared to human energy and not to the Holy Spirit. And the birds in the branches are not even good either. They represent Satan. Now, we find here that our Lord leaves off teaching and they go out into the sea. He wants to rest. He's tired. He goes to sleep. And then you have this miracle of him quieting the sea. And did you know the thing that made them fear? It says they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It was not so much the fact he quieted the storm, but the way that he did it. It had just leveled out. There was a sudden calm. And this miracle was so great that it made these men afraid. What a wonderful thing it is. He puts us in the storms of life in order that we might come closer to him and that we might know him better. Jesus Savior, pilot me, O'er life's tempestuous sea, Unknown waves before me roll, Hiding rocks and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from Thee, Jesus Savior, pilot me.